Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. This episode of EU Confidential is presented by Ørsted. The Denmark-based energy company has transformed into the greenest in Europe. Ørsted has also just released the largest ever survey on attitudes towards green energy at ørsted.com/barometer. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU news and politics podcast. Remember, wherever you are, please try and rate, review or subscribe to this podcast so that you can have a better experience and we can keep growing this community. It's been a quiet week in Brussels this week. The main action is actually a summit of EU leaders on social issues in Gothenburg, Sweden, Friday. Here we'll see the gap between the rhetoric and the reality of the so-called European social model. When many people think of Europe, they think welfare state, but actually there are major discrepancies in social protections between EU countries as well as big wealth and education gaps, both within and between those countries. Meanwhile, the COP23 Global Climate Summit is ongoing in Bonn, Germany, and the European Parliament has been meeting in Strasbourg rather than Brussels this week. First up, I'm going to talk to Sara Stefanini, who is Politico's senior energy and climate reporter, and she's on the ground in Bonn, where she's been listening to the first ministerial and leaders' speeches. Our feature interview this week is with the Elder Sertra, the CEO of Statoil, Norway's massive state oil and gas company, and the source of the country's huge sovereign wealth. In our panel discussion, we tackle white supremacists in Poland, the all-female lineup of World Economic Forum chairs in 2018, and advise a Brussels employee about whether to blow the whistle on an alleged non-disclosure agreement their boss signed with a female staff member after alleged mistreatment. Now we go to Sara Stefanini, joining me on the line. Thanks for joining us on the line from Bonn, Sarah. What's the mood there this week now that the leaders have started to make their speeches? Finally, the pressure here has moved on to what developed countries in particular are doing about climate change between now and 2020. Because whereas at the COP21, where they reached the Paris Agreement, and in the past, the pressure has always been about kind of the long-term strategy and um, all of the climate pledges that countries have submitted under the Paris Agreement start in 2020. But now that that's all in place, countries, developing countries especially, are saying, okay, we reached the Paris Agreement two years ago, but still emissions are going up and nothing's changed and what are you doing about it? So they're really blaming the richer advanced countries and is that part of why China is putting its foot down now and not cooperating as much as the EU might have hoped on this kind of anti-US front? Yeah, I think it's um, it's really about China's kind of speaking on behalf of the bigger developing bloc of countries and even though the Paris Agreement 
got rid of what people in the climate circles call bifurcation, which essentially means that developing countries have smaller responsibilities than developed countries because richer countries are responsible for climate change. Even though the Paris Agreement says everyone needs to do a little bit of everything, developing countries led by China are still pushing for this differentiation or bifurcation uh, of responsibilities. Are they backtracking on Paris or do they just mean the developed countries have to really get their act together in the next few years um, in order for them to stick to the Paris Agreement? Um, I wouldn't call it backtracking exactly, but it's kind of the the difference now is that the Paris Agreement is kind of this broad framework that says we are going to do this in the next decades. And now, last year, this year and next year, they're negotiating the actual rules and the nitty gritty details about how you actually help limit global warming. And that involves things like reporting on your annual emissions, reporting on your financial aid, making sure everyone kind of does it in the same way because it's not that easy to count emissions. And so this is where the differentiation is coming in because China, Iran, Ecuador, countries like this say, you know, we're less experienced at reporting our emissions. You, the rich countries, are the ones that are supposed to be providing a lot more financial aid. You know, you can't ask us to have the same responsibilities as you. And it's been, it's been a lot of, uh, let's say, celebrity action uh, around Bonn. We've seen that from the activism side. We've seen it from the Arnold Schwarzenegger sort of figures arriving and this sort of circus around the U.S. Uh, shadow delegation kind of saying other parts of the U.S. system are here to act, even if the Trump administration isn't here to act. Who are the sort of personalities or leaders that have made the biggest impact from what you've seen? Yeah, well, I think over the weekend, it was really the Americans um, you had on the sort of sidelines in the, the side event area of the COP23. You had all of these current and former governors like Schwarzenegger and um, Jerry Brown of California. You had Michael Bloomberg and Democratic lawmakers um, all saying, you know, we're going to continue fighting climate change and we're going to meet the goals regardless of what Trump does. On the other side, you actually also had um, Trump administration people and someone from the, the coal company Peabody coming in and talking about the role of fossil fuels and sort of generating a lot of protests and activism. So it's funny because I think that in the in the negotiations, the U.S. is more sidelined because even though they're still involved in the talks because they're still in the Paris Agreement, they don't carry the weight that they used to. But then on the sidelines, the U.S. is much more visible than it probably ever was. And if you were rating the EU's happiness with how it's all gone or their performance you know if you gave the eu a score out of 10 about what they'd be feeling at the end of the conference what what number would you put on it uh, i'd say seven to eight i think they're probably doing pretty well um i think the the eu has come under a lot of pressure but at the same time it sort of it has continued to step into the role of being the the leader in the u.s absence mm -hmm. and is there any risk next year thinking about poland as the host of the conference could they form a kind of climate sceptic front with the US and really throw a curveball at everybody involved in the process? I think if you speak to a lot of, um, sort of climate campaigners and NGOs and people involved on the sidelines, they're very worried about um, the, the COP in Poland. They say that the 2013 Warsaw COP, you had coal miners protesting outside and you had a massive 
conference on call sort of down the down the street from the the cop but then when you speak to negotiators they're less worried i think because in the negotiating room poland can be difficult but it's still if it unless it really wants to act up and look like a rebel then it's going to have to follow by the rules and i think you'll probably have quite strong commission presence behind poland and this will also be poland's third cop so i think expectations are a little bit mixed uh, about whether how much you can really water down the paris agreement excellent well sarah thank you very much for your time we'll let you get back to reporting the leaders speeches and uh, enjoy the rest of the conference thank you you were listening to Sara Stefanini from Politico, and now it's time to hear from Elder Sertra from Statoil. Welcome to the podcast, Elder Sertra. So thank you for joining us. I thought we might dive into the energy transition. So this decades-long multi-sector attempt to move the world off fossil fuels, very critical to your business, and with the intention of reducing carbon emissions. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing to cope with those changes. How is Statoil re-engineering itself, engaging with all of those political forces? So first of all, uh, the starting point has to be the right one. And for us, this is a fundamental recognition that climate change is real, it's happening. And then not only talking about it and referring to it, but actually translating that into, into action, into our strategies, embedding it into our strategies, and uh, then design our business, you know, from, mm-hmm. from that starting point. And that's, that's what we're doing. We recognize fundamentally that oil and gas is part of the issue, part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, definitely we have to be part of the solution as well. There is also a reality here that we have to relate to. Oil and gas is an integrated part of the global economy mm-hmm. and every human being's, you know, daily life. You know, it's such in, so integrated that people might not even realize it. So it will not be easy to solve these, these complex equations Oil and gas will have to remain be part of you know whatever kind of solutions and which oil and gas we produce is is going to be increasingly important. Being carbon efficient and even more carbon efficient, mm-hmm. putting ambitious targets on how we how we do that, also looking carefully. And is that about how you get the oil and gas? Well, and being you, you smarter use a lot that? of uh, you lose a lot of energy typically when you produce oil and gas. Mm-hmm. I can il- illustrate this from from our ambitions. We have reduced carbon emissions by something like 1.2 million tons over the last few years. Mm -hmm. And we will... And what sort of percentage of your overall carbon emissions was that? Well, uh, you know, that's, you know, the main part of our emissions, you know, comes from the the usage of oil and gas. Mm -hmm. But just to illustrate the significance of this, and in terms of the the increased ambitions that we have put forward, which is 3 million tons going into 2030, that is, you know... uh, 4.2 4.2 million tons every year in, in reduced emissions compared to the, the starting point. That is more than the whole car park of, you know, in, in Norway. So it's quite significant in, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of scale. So this is what we're working on. Then, obviously, on top of that, we are looking at the overall energy picture and how do we relate to the shapes and form of the energy mix going forward. Mm-hmm. So at some point, there will be less oil and gas being produced. There has to be. Yeah. How you produce it and which resource you produce is important but during the transition but what about the renewables and, and other shapes and forms mm-hmm. of energy? So for us, CCS is really important. How and that's can we, carbon capture and that storage. That is carbon capture and storage. And I would like to add a U, a utilization mm-hmm. component to that, because, you know, we will be left with oil and gas for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just not leaving there, but, but see how can we decarbonize oil and gas into this transition is, is going to be extremely important. Every scenario that has been looked at, you know, has 
significant contribution from, from carbon capture and storage as part of the roadmap to, to meet the two degree target. Mm-hmm. And the action is really lagging on that. Yeah. And, and we have to sort of move forward. And do and you th- feel like your competitors taking that seriously or that you, you feel you're ahead of the game and really one of the, the leaders in actually taking that whole value chain of the fossil fuels series. Well, now I think we are one of the leaders to it, to be honest. I think, you know... That's a good thing. Say, you, think, you don't have to be shy. Well, you know, I think it's definitely we are lagging and I've been discussing this. I was at the IA ministerial and side events and there's a lot of discussion about this now. I met with, with the Commissioner Cagnetta this morning mm-hmm. and we discussed these type of issues and I, I sense there is a recognition that these, this has to be addressed but we also have to take costs down, you know, mm-hmm. because this has to make sense from an economic perspective. But then you need scale. What you, what you have seen in renewable energy, once you pass these hurdles, you come to start scaling up this, mm-hmm. you know, costs will come down. I see no reason why it shouldn't come down. And, and you've got a massive wind farm off Scotland. So the renewable part is, is, uh, is, is also important. So we are quite a big player now in renewable energy. Mm-hmm. And offshore wind is the, is the main effort of ours. That is where we have the most sort of logical extension of oil and gas. Uh, we can use our competence and, and, and make the most, you know, profitable contributions to, to new energy. That in the sense of, you know, having deep and complicated, not rigs, but, you know, you've got structures out in the deep ocean. So it's this is a this difficult is environment to operate I'm in. I'm talking about CCS and, yeah. and costs coming down. And mm-hmm. that's what we have seen on these structures. I remember the first projects that we engaged in requiring massive subsidies. Yeah. And what we have seen in the latest project is that you're very close to having... And, and installing uh, uh, offshore wind actually more or less without subsidies. You're getting mm-hmm. very close to that point. And that's a tremendous yeah. journey, simply from technology, scaling up mm-hmm. turbines and, and bigger parks and get the industrial scale to the whole thing. And that's that's the kind of development we I think we need to see when it comes to carbon and CCS as well. But it takes some initial actions. You need to pass these first hurdles. Yeah. And then it needs orchestration. Governments need to orchestrate mm-hmm. this. It's pretty complex value chains. But we need to work on all of this, it's, it's, and it's all really embedded into our corporate strategies. And now if we turn a little bit to the government and the political level, because you were saying it's important that they're sending the right signals, there might need to be legislation, we've got things like the Paris Climate Agreement and so on. And I wanted to turn to that because we're in the middle of this meeting in Bonn, Germany, the Conference of Parties, the COP23 conference. Do you feel that the right level of effort and implementation is taking place with something like that global umbrella structure of the Paris Climate Agreement? Or are we in a rocky moment with people like Donald Trump trying to disrupt it and all those tricky questions of moving from the the theories and the commitments to the the actual rollout? My starting point is that the whole world is lagging. And and obviously what has happened after after Paris is, is slightly lagging. We still haven't got all the commitments from all countries in place. And we see that the United States is, is you know... Hopefully not, but, but said that they might sort of withdraw from this. So I'd, I'd sincerely hope that they will turn that around and mm-hmm. really join the parties in, in this effort. We need the United States on board in, in, in this. So I guess this is a sort of kind of intermediate COP event, mm-hmm. you know, they're talking about this time. But uh, if anything, what I hope, really hope, is that they recognize that, you know, this is moving too slowly yeah. and we need the, the global action. And, and, and that can sort of take us forward and, and hopefully have sort of a really positive uh, COP uh, at the end of next year. And do you know Rex Tillerson? Can you get on the phone and say, Rex, we're old mates. You've got to get in his ear. We have to do some more. You know, I could call Rex. <laughs> but uh, I think the U.S. politics is more complex than that. So, so uh, you know, a fair I, point. I, a fair know, point. So, uh, 
I'm very open about this. When mm-hmm. I go to Washington, I meet people in Washington, I'm very open about what I would like them to do. And at the EU level, because sometimes when we can't take action globally or it's going too slowly globally, the EU, while complex, is still a bit more of a useful unit to make action happen. And obviously you're from Norway, so Norway's not an EU member, but it's got a super close relationship to the EU. And we've seen the EU announce a lot of things recently. So they've got their energy package that they're working on. Mobility package came out yesterday. Uh, they're working on a plastic strategy. A lot of the input into plastics is the, the stuff that you um, get out of the sea. Do you feel like the EU is taking the right smart actions here, or would you like to see them do something a bit differently or a bit more or less? I think there's a lot of lot of right actions within the EU, and, and if you look at well, the rest of the world, it's, it's, it's come. I don't think you could find any places where we actually come to a, such an advanced level as you see within the EU. And high ambitions, uh, one thing which is important, and, and I stress that as often as I can, so I appreciate this opportunity, is on the carbon pricing, the ETS, and I mm-hmm. you know they had a busy night working on, on that, uh, so, yeah. so it's moving forward, but, uh, but it's so important, and I think the EU could also take a more global role in actually shaping yeah. that because what EU is doing, we see the same attempts and you know in, in a lot of jurisdictions around the world and I think these trying to connecting these dots in a way mm-hmm. and see if these things can work together and I think the EU could take a shaping role yeah. in that. And see, is that see, like working with the US states and with China you mean? Well that would be a part of it. Canada, states in Canada and mm-hmm. so on. So you see a list this emerging in many many jurisdictions but it's it's scattered. And it wouldn't take a lot to sort of start a dialogue on how to combine these, you know, is there sort of synergies, design issues that could be sort of shared and, and, and that could make it easier to do. And, and if there was a force, you know, that really the, the jurisdiction that is really work, working on this c- came together, that, that would be a strong push towards the rest of the world. Because mm-hmm. I think, honestly, price on carbon is the single most important factor. The complexity, if you start to regulate, mm-hmm. you know, into a, towards a two-degree scenario, that is going to be very complex, maybe even more complex than, mm-hmm. a, than a carbon pricing system would be, and, and it would be at a very high cost because you won't allow the markets to do the job. So there's almost nothing more powerful than actually enabling the power of the marketplace to mm-hmm. start doing the job. We've seen that on the Norwegian continent shelf. For instance, we had a carbon tax for more than 20 years, and mm-hmm. what has that has done to carbon emissions with our, within our industry? And it's a huge impact, and I just advocate it as strongly as I can. Thank you for that. One of the things I remember back to the George W. Bush era in the U.S. is he made the very strong pitch that technology would have solved a lot of the the carbon problems. And I was much younger then and very, very, very skeptical of that argument. And I went on to go and do more work in the tech digital side of things. And I'm a bit, bit more open to that now. And I've just come back from the Web Summit in Lisbon. And so I'm wondering if you've got any take on the role that research and development can do, either in developing the new technologies to making uh, your processes smarter as the oil and gas component of your business remains in place for the next decades or however long it's going to be there. What role can technology play alongside those other market mechanisms to, to solve these issues? Well, innovation technology is really the single most important factor. I could illustrate this by what has happened within the oil and gas industry over the last couple of years. We've taken down costs significantly, I would say almost 50%, and produce still the same wow. volumes. And, and it comes from innovation, new solutions, and then we have just started to address the digital solutions and opportunities mm-hmm. that is uh, in front of us. So you will see it, you know, that development continue. We'll see very different solutions from what we've seen in the past, and uh, remotely controlled subsea solutions and you know more 
uh, industrialized solutions. So, so this is with much lower carbon footprint as well. Yeah. So these these development, what we have seen in in renewable energy, in cars, electric cars, you know, mm-hmm. is basically technology. But my point is, it is not enough. Can it be used for bad as well? I mean, I'm speaking as an ignorant outsider here, but. I imagine that if you're developing better technology, then that can be applied to tar sand oil extraction or something like that. It might be a question of where you direct the research money to, mm. to, to, to solve one problem rather than yeah. another. So obviously it can, and, and carbon, you know, CCS can also you know, work for coal. But the starting point is that you will have twice as much uh, carbon to capture and, and, and store on coal as you would sort of, and there are many other issues, right? And, yeah. And when it comes to oil sands, yeah, you can see sort of uh, solutions that really takes down the carbon footprint in, in producing oil from, from, from oil sands. I've said basically as a starting point, I don't do that. I have to make choices, mm-hmm. and I start with the easiest resources. But technology will have to work all over the place. We can't sort of decide you know, and, and exclude from, from those developments. And if it works, well, then it's into, into competition, also the carbon competition. So, so I think we, we, can't, we can't design these kind of solutions. Mm-hmm. If, if it works and technology supports it, that's good. Maybe one final question or one final theme to, to look at briefly is uh, sort of geopolitical questions. And in my head, I had Russia on your eastern side and the UK and Brexit on uh, your, your left flank, if we're looking at the, the world map. Do you feel under pressure from those sort of uh, forces? Does it impact on how you organize your business? So my, my starting point is that global Global economic integration is is so valuable, so important. Look what it has done to to, to the wealth of nations, and and uh, you know, looking at our oil and gas, you know, God has done the job. Geology rules geography, to put it that way, and we need sort of access to the markets, and and to be com- competitive, you need access to people, talents, technologies, and and. Uh, goods and, and, and services in, in, in the most cost-efficient way. So I think this is essential. And, and also when it comes to carbon, you know, the God recognize no national borders at all. So the solution has to, has to be global. So we need that global, you know, really perspective on whatever we do. So anything that could take us and distract us from that is, mm-hmm. is something that I don't consider to be, be, be good. So I, I don't like dis- disruptions. I don't like sort of geopolitical issues. You know, it's, it's risk. It's, 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 it's not good, but I have to relate to it, you know. And when it comes to Brexit, for instance, that is, I think it is sad that we are in a situation like that. But I really hope that, you know, we'll, that what comes out of it will be the best possible solution. And when it comes to energy, for instance, that, you know, the UK will stay in one way or the other as closely connected to the European market as as, uh, as possible. Russian issues is sanctions for us. And, and as a, a company, I have to sort of relate to the sanctions. That's very complex issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no borderline there. We have to stay very on the right side of the, any, any kind of borderline. So yeah. it complicates business and it's not good for sort of the overarching global integration that we need. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you very much. Now a brief word from our sponsor. But when we come back, we'll be talking to our regular podcast panel. This episode of Politico's EU Confidential Podcast is presented by Ørsted, which is the Denmark-based energy company formerly known as Dong Energy. Dong was originally short for Danish oil and natural gas, but then they went ahead and sold their oil and gas department and transformed it into the world's largest offshore wind company. At Ørsted, they believe it's time to take real action to create a world that runs entirely on green energy. The year of 2016 was the warmest on record. Currently, the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere is at the highest level ever measured, and ocean levels are continuing to rise. Recently, Ørsted and Edelman Intelligence conducted the largest ever survey on attitudes towards green energy. They call it the Green Energy Barometer. 
One of the results is that eight out of ten people across nations, generations, and political standpoints believe it's important for the world to run entirely on renewables. Check out the survey for more results on ostedcom barometer. And now it's time to welcome back our podcast panel, Alva Finn, Lena Rabarus. Good morning. Back. Hello, good morning. It's great to be with you here on this grey day in Brussels. So whenever you're listening to it, just think of us smiling and enjoying ourselves here. Yeah. Well, not too much, because we have a serious EU WTF to kick off with this week. And that is the march of 60,000 people at a nationalist rally in Warsaw over the weekend. Many of them far-right wingers, potentially worse. And I also had some feedback from readers saying you can't say that all 60,000 people were nasty people who wanted bad things for Europe. You shouldn't condemn all of those people who were just marching to commemorate Poland's independence because of a few loonies. What do you think, ladies? Well, I had heard that the whole reason that they were marching was for a white Europe. So, I mean, maybe they are, and this is the thing, white supremacists can be normal people too, right? But I think it should be a cause for great concern that 60,000 people were marching around in Europe, basically saying that they wanted only white people in Europe. That's terrifying. I mean, Charlottesville, there was only a couple of thousand And also it was very violent. But I think that should be cause for great concern. Some of the things that they were shouting were terrifying, you know, praying for an Islamic Holocaust. And I think we say this sometimes on the podcast, you know, I can't believe this is happening in Europe. Like, I really cannot believe that this is happening in Europe. Lena, can you? It's extremely alerting. It's extremely alerting. And uh, I was wondering what could be the reaction from Brussels with all these uh, social papers and social inclusion and all the values, uh, all the press releases and statements we hear from uh, the commissioners and the spokespersons. I mean, there is a, a mode of silence as if this doesn't exist. As I always say, again, Europe keeps preaching and decides to close their eyes on its own problems. I was wondering, to be honest with you, if this is going to be a norm and we would just be incorporating or feeling like, ah, it's fine, well, just another manifestation, just another march, and no one is really thinking the roots of these problems, tackling it, working with with the governments, with the social communities, to know why. And uh, is this the future Europe wants for its citizens, for its people. I really wonder. And it's really alerting and scary. I have a few contradictory thoughts. Well, maybe they're not contradictory. But, for example, this point about tackling the root of the problem, where I'm unsure whether the government in Poland itself is the root of the problem because it encourages Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and stirs up this sort of resentment and anger, or whether it's successful because it's reflecting the fact that people are very uncertain about their identity and how that's changing in this globalized world and with Poland in the European Union. But I also think that people who march in these sort of protests get a free pass in Europe. They get a label like far right or populist because there isn't necessarily a huge non-white community in whichever country they're marching in. But if this was happening in the US, people would be horrified that this was happening because there is an other, there is a large African-American or Hispanic or Jewish community, etc. There's something to very clearly oppose it against, whereas in these more homogenous countries in Europe, they get the free pass. And then also when you're at a protest, like it's very easy to be 
hoodwinked. Like you can join for reasonable reasons and not realize what is happening in the corner. So I don't think that excuses people who participating in something that has the potential to go wrong. But I do realize that some people might not have known who was doing things in their name. Let's go on to a lighter topic, perhaps not so light if you're a cycling MEP, for example, but we have a rather interesting situation, a recurring situation in the European Parliament in both Brussels and Strasbourg. So if you haven't caught up on the news, MEPs are losing access to warm slash hot water in their offices because there is a Legionella persistent outbreak. There's something called dead-end pipes which means that basically the pipes in the parliament have become a haven for bacteria. And unanimously, the European Parliament Medical Service has said we have to turn off all the hot water (laughs) except to a few essential services where we can fix it uh, in the parliament. So essentially, your representatives are stuck with cold water. They're having cold water literally poured on them in the European Parliament now. And we're not in a developing country, and they've known about this for years. So I don't want to prejudge your reactions, but tell us, what does this make you think? The best part of this coverage is that the parliament said that there will be sharing kitchen and showers in the comments from the parliament that they have sent you guys. So it's interesting. So they'll have to be so going sharing, to like scout camp again. Yeah, so sharing is caring finally. And I just wonder, how would we feel with all the refugees in the tents that they don't have water, they don't have uh, hot water, they don't have showers and we're just being annoyed that for a few days, few weeks we will not have hot water in the European Parliament, so really I, did once I call can't Brussels, feel sorry for that I called Brussels the most high class refugee but that's an interesting point that you just brought up there that they're going to have to share things I wonder if that will lead to you know some more cooperation between the parties are they going to do it by on different by levels party, on are they going to do levels. it by country or how are yeah, this a gonna new be, space in which to bully others yeah oh god yeah we already know what's going on in the European Parliament yeah. no wonder they all have private showers ugh um I've never but, heard of this in any other organisation. What is special about the pipes in the European Parliament that mean this bacteria cannot be cleaned out of them? Like, I just... Is there a dead-end pipe cover-up across the rest of Europe? Are we just not knowing the full extent <laughs> of dead-end pipes and the dangers they pose to all of us is everywhere Is it contagious to other in- institutions? I hope not, though. God, yeah. I mean, they do have houses, apartments, studios, flats. I mean, mm. they can have a shower and come back and we all save the planet and reduce our consumption of water as well so it's okay well I think they are flying around quite often you know they're going back and forth and also they have to spend so much time in Strasbourg and apparently this is also affecting the building in Strasbourg of course (laughs) it is I think there's something we're not being told yeah we, we, I don't know what it is, listeners, but we're going to find out in the coming weeks. Two different buildings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have to, to think. Yeah. Right. Well, now it's time for an EU thumbs up. It's technically not the EU, but we got a nomination from Lena for the World Economic Forum, who have put forward seven female co-chairs for their big powwow in Davos in January 2018. And for an organization that has notoriously struggled to get women to actually participate, that's quite a gesture to put them right at the top of the Mm -hmm. tree. Well, thumbs up for the World Economic Forum by all means. It's the 48th 
World Economic Summit. It took them 48 summits to have all the co-chairs women. It's fantastic in use. And as they say, it's an organization that they lead the world. They have every who's who there. So I hope they inspire other organizations and other countries and other capitals. And certainly here in Brussels, just last week, you have issued the 28 women influencers in Brussels and women leaders. So it's a wonderful moment for women. And I hope we lead by example. It's a huge responsibility. And with all the problems the world is facing, with uh, it needs feminine leadership. Alva's sitting here with her arms crossed. No, I was going to say, I don't necessarily... I do think, obviously, it's, it's needed. We need panels that have women on them. But then to go to swing to the opposite side again, we really should have a gender balance. I think it's a great way to show, you know, that prob- I wonder how many of the World Economic Forums have been co-chaired by all men. I'd say probably a lot of them. So it's a good point to make, but we do need gender balance because women and men have different perspectives. They experience the world in different ways. So yeah, I think it's uh, amazing. But like next year, I wouldn't like to see an all-female panel again. And I never want to see an all-male panel again. So yeah, maybe I'm just being contrary today, but I do think it's uh, you have to have this kind of gender balance perspective if you really want to look at it from both sides of the coin, I think. Just to underline something, usually they always have one female as a co-chair. I've attended so many summits and it was always as if that they just needed this lady on the panel. And now it's, 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 it's great. I just remember one, one yeah. situation. So my former boss joined one of those all-male panels and she was the only woman and she was late coming in. And it's a tricky situation in Davos because there's a lot of icy things and so on. Uh, and so women often walk around in flat shoes, but then change the shoes before they go into the, the main arena, etc. And she was doing this. She put her heels on. She got on stage. She did stand down. So this is true. And the moderator was like, we're so glad that you've brought a touch of color to this very gray panel. And we're so excited to have you here. And she just popped off and went, well, I hope you invited me for my brain, not for my pink dress. And, yep. blah, blah. and the guy thought he was saying something nice, but all he did was underline how ridiculous the actual non-balance was in the situation. The first exactly. thought that came into his mind was to comment on what she was wearing, not ask her what she planned to say to the exactly. event. Exactly. But that's, I think you hit a nail on the head. It's tokenism. It's just putting someone in there to look good, mm-hmm. to make sure that you're ticking that kind of diversity box. And that's absolutely not what we want. We want real diversity that reflects the diversity that we have in humanity. So this idea that now we have an all-female panel, I wonder if that's ever going to happen again. And is that tokenism? Of course, it's great. I do think it's a way to kind of shift the way that we've been looking at this kind of panel situation. Oh, now we have an all-female panel. But what about a panel that has someone who doesn't identify either way or a transgendered person? Or And we still, I think, we're very focused on the issue of gender balance here in Brussels but we definitely don't have balance if we're looking at ethnicity race yeah I mean I'm on all white panels all the time as the only woman but we will need to see as well it's good that they tried and we'll see the outcomes excellent now it's time for our dear politico advice section so I've got uh, another letter that will uh, well hopefully it won't confuse us but it will certainly challenge us here we go dear politico My boss, it's a Brussels company, has signed at least one non-disclosure agreement with a woman who used to work for him, so she cannot talk about how he treated her. There may be more, and, I suspect, financial settlements. Now we've been warned not to talk to you about it. What should I do? That's incredibly interesting. I have wondered to myself how often this happens. You know, so someone 
is abused in the workplace and then they go to make a formal complaint. Someone is very powerful, so they just pay them off. We know that this has happened in high-profile cases of, of sexual harassment or assault in the US, for example. I had never heard of it happening here, but I did wonder to myself, does it happen? I don't know if I can have advice for you that wouldn't necessarily land you in some hot water. I think it would be quite important to check what are the legalities of the whole thing. Was there criminal behaviour involved? I'm not sure that isn't clear. Well, that might change it. If, if there's criminal behaviour in discussion, the disclosure agreement, the non-disclosure agreement might not apply. Well, I, I don't know what the law is here, so that is something to check. But yeah, it's a very worrying situation. I think this, to me, would ring alarm bells that do I want to work in a place like this? Mm. Am I going to be the next person? Even if nothing has happened to you, but it's happened to someone in the past and then one of your senior partners or whoever have paid someone off to not talk about these things. I mean, that's a toxic environment to me. So I probably would be looking for a new job if I were you. I believe it's great that they wrote you, even that Mm. they were told not to talk about it, not to, to contact you. This is one courageous male or a female that decided to, no, I'm not going to be silent. I'm going to raise the flag. Now, I'm not sure that it is legal to, to sign an, an undisclosure agreement or confidentiality agreement. They don't last for life. There's a period to do it for certain. I, I worked in a place where I had an undisclosure agreement, but for a certain, uh, for a limited period of time. The, and how could they be in Because I wonder if this person did speak out, and I'm not advising them to, but if they did, how could it be enforced except via the person the allegations are made against admitting that they are the the source of the allegations or the subject of the allegations? Yeah, or if somebody proves that you were the the source, there are so many ways to to do that. But Um, that itself then becomes the news, doesn't it? Absolutely. But the thing is, why would somebody accept first to participate in such a really nasty situation and this is the way you want to build your career? Is this the way you want to build your company? Why would a team still stay there and continue this really horrific saga? But I suppose one distinction is that from what I understand from the email, you haven't yourself signed a non-disclosure agreement. Someone else has and that's who the behaviour is about. But you've been asked by someone senior to you not to say anything about it. Now, I still think that's very toxic, but you could talk if you wanted to because you're not bound by the non-disclosure. But the question is, how did you find out? So if you witness the behaviour, that's plausible. But if the person who signed the agreement talked to you, then that puts that person at more risk. Yeah, Yeah. It's a very difficult situation, particularly then if you come out and then that person who's bound by the non-disclosure agreement says, I don't want to say anything. You know, unless you really witnessed some of this stuff or know exactly what happened maybe before the person decided signed the non-disclosure agreement. That's a different scenario, but it's a very difficult situation, I think, very toxic, and I would be running for the hills if I were you. Okay, well, thank you for that advice. We hope that was useful to you. I, I was a little bit quiet there because obviously my job is to write stories, and so probably I shouldn't be advising you um, on that matter. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of EU Confidential. That's all we've got time for this week. But we would love you to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast so we can keep delivering it to you every week and growing this community. And a big shout-out to the people who make the podcast possible, not only our panellists, but our producer, Rosie Belson, Andrew Gray, and Wade Ongley.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.